Mets fans, I want to take a quick break from talking baseball and let you know about the next top prospect in building a smart home. Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 is that big time new star prospect. The Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 is a smart lock, a 2K resolution camera, and a doorbell. It's three devices in one, triple the security. You know triples are rare in baseball, but not with Eufy. You can have everything in one device rather than install many pieces on your front door. It's not just for security, but also for convenience. Just the other night, I had tons of packages in the rain. Rather than fumble for my keys, I easily entered my home. This is big since I have four dogs who are impatiently waiting for me at the door. No more concerns about losing keys, and you could assign passwords to your family members. Worried about when your loved ones are getting home? Eufy allows you to see them coming back home via the integrated camera. Hey Mets fans, this is a home run. I had a competitive product before Eufy, and it's the difference between a one-dimensional hitter and a five-tool player. Eufy is that five-tool superstar. Go to eufy.com, that's E-U-F-Y.com to learn more. Already sold? Go to Amazon and get your Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 today. Want to go to the store? Best Buy will have it starting around May 20th. Get complete control over your front door at ease with the Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 today. If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And Midi can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. Two balls, two strikes. The record. Dwight Gooden has set a new Major League record for strikeouts by a rookie pitcher, and he is the first pitcher, 19 years of age, to have a chance to be the strikeout leader. It's another edition of the Talking Mets podcast here on this Sunday, April the 26th, 2020. Of course, I'm your host, Mike Silva. You can check me out all the time at thetalkingmetspodcast.com. Send me a tweet at Mike Silva Media, and you can get the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, pretty much whatever podcasting service you desire. If you want to send me a personal note, Mike Silva at thetalkingmetspodcast.com. No G. At TalkingMetsPodcast.com. Welcome into another edition of the podcast. Hope everybody's doing well. Hope you're hanging in there. Hope you're staying healthy as uh, we continue to sit back and see how the baseball season will eventually evolve, if it will evolve. And I guess we'll call these the pandemic series of uh, Mets Podcast and the Talking Mets Podcast. And today I have a special guest, and I had teased it a little bit earlier. In the week, a former Met is joining me today. You guys know him very well. Former Met, former Yankees pitcher, Rookie of the Year, All-Star Game, Cy Young Award, member of the 1986 World Champion New York Mets. Dwight Gooden will be joining me. The good doctor is in the house with me as I caught up with him earlier in the week. Now, other interviews with Doc, and there have been some in recent weeks even, really focus on Doc and and I guess some of the things that have happened off the field, looking back, regrets. I know Doc has been battling over the years and really working towards uh, moving forward and getting away from a lot of the things that have plagued him throughout his career and life. And when I had a chance to interview Doc, I thought about this and I said, I don't want to do, and I, and I, same thing when we had Mike Piazza on a few we, a few months ago, last year actually, almost a year ago. There's so much that has been said and so much that has been talked about with these players. Having Just having them on the podcast, it's, yeah, it's a gold star for me. Great, you were able to get them. But if I don't provide you with something different, 
something to think about, something new to learn. And th- those are, I find very hard at times. Then I, I personally think it's a waste of time and we should have done something else because that's what I want you to walk away with. I want you to walk away being entertained. I want you to w- walk away with learning something. I want you to walk away feeling like whether it's, you know, 50 minutes, 30 minutes, an hour that your time spent on this podcast was well worth it. So I hope you enjoy this interview because I focused a little bit about Doc just pitching. Doc the pitcher. And yeah, we have a couple of old stories. And I think anytime you get one of these former players on, you love to hear their memories and their old stories. But if you could combine that with some talk about baseball and connecting the present with the past, I find that to be maybe the best type of interview you can do with uh, a, a you know former player or even a modern day player. I first focused on, and you'll hear, we talk about his early years. I share a story about my interaction with Davey Johnson, and I've told this before. I, I believe I've told you guys this before on the podcast. If you're new, maybe you haven't heard it. But Davey and I, back in 2010, when he was elected into the Mets Hall of Fame, had a back and forth about the amount of innings that he used Doc. Uh, Davey thought Doc could have been in the big leagues, he told me, right out of high school. And he pitched them quite a bit those first two years. And I talked about pitcher abuse uh, theories and things that had just come out during that time. And Doc, I mean, uh, Davey was completely against it. So we talk a little bit about that. I share that story with Doc. You look at the accomplishments. Doc won a Rookie of the Year, a Cy Young Award, and a championship in the first three years of his career. It doesn't get much better than that. It almost is impossible to surprise or impress anybody after that. We've talked about that with Jacob deGrom and his back-to-back Cy Youngs. We've talked about about that with Pete Alonso and his Rookie of the Year, how they're going to face that. So we get into that and talk a little bit about how, how did that impact his career. Doc had a change as a pitcher, and this is underreported. Doc had a very serious shoulder surgery. He had a capsule issue. Very serious. And most pitchers that have that and and come back are never the same again. So Doc talks about the Doc Gooden that he was post, not just post-Mets going to the Yankees, but post-Doc with the shoulder issues and, and what happened to his curveball, his signature pitch, and how that impacted him. And of course, we'll get into some of the great games. And I even share with Doc... What statistically, if you use the game score over on Baseball Reference, the Bill James game score, what statistically is his best game? He's surprised to hear it, so we'll talk a little bit about that. Of course, you could get Doc on Twitter, at DocGooden16. He has his own website, GoodenBrand.com, so want to give a little bit of plug if you want to get some Doc Gooden paraphernalia shirts, what have you, including one that's Lord Charles. You can get that over there as well. So, all right, sit tight. Let's take a break. You don't want to hear more from me. You want to hear from our guest, Doc Gooden. Let's take a quick break. When we come back, former Met, former Yankee, Rookie of the Year, Cy Young Award winner, winner, member of the 1986 World Champion Mets, also the 96 Yankees, the 2000 Yankees, Dwight Gooden, the good doctors in the house. We'll be back right after this. Dwight Gooden takes over on the mound. So he becomes the youngest man ever to play in the All-Star game, 19, two years out of high school. One of the brilliant young Met pitchers leads the majors in strikeouts at the All-Star break. 2-2 pitch to Parrish. Got him swinging. So Dwight Gooden leading the bigs in strikeouts. Strikes Parrish out. As it crossed the plate, not in the catcher's glove. And he strikes him out. So the last five American leaguers have gone down on strikes. Two balls, two strikes on Al Davis of Seattle. And good strikes out the side. White good. Two years out of high school, two years ago in Tampa, Florida. And at the age of 19, comes into the All-Star game and strikes out the side. We're back, and joining me, you all know him, former Met, former Yankee, Dwight Gooden. Uh, you guys can check him out on Twitter, at DocGooden16. Goodenbrand.com is his website. Some great stuff over there. Some uh, cool shirts. If you want to get a shirt about Lord Charles, you could get one of those. And he's joining us now. And, and Doc, uh, welcome in. Obviously, baseball on a hiatus. How are you doing? And how are you doing without baseball? What's going on? Uh, how you doing, buddy? Uh, Mike, thanks for having me. And I actually have on my Lord Charles shirt now. I'm in Maryland uh, with my younger kids, Kenyon's son, and a Kenyon daughter that lives here in Maryland, my ex-wife. So I came down here for a week, spent time with them. And um, 
Everything's going okay. It's hard, like I said, I'm bored out of my mind without sports, and especially baseball. And this time of year, um, I'm still a huge baseball fan. And I'll go out in the spring training, miss spring training every year. Went down to this year. And they look pretty good. Unfortunately, training guard, you know, had some surgery. But outside of that, I, I'm looking for some great things this year. So hopefully, yep. somehow, they find a way to get back on the field. Me, personally, I don't see it. I hope I'm wrong. But, you know, at this point, you take anything you can get, any type of baseball. You get um, tonight, I was just watching a bit of the, the 95 playoff for the Yankees in Seattle. I mean, those games are good, but they really don't do them for me. I'm looking for the season this year. Absolutely. Uh, we're talking some pitching here with Dwight Gooden at Doc Gooden 16 on Twitter. So I'll tell you a quick story, Doc. So 2010, you were elected into the Mets Hall of Fame with Davey Johnson, the late Frank Cash, and Dal Strawberry. I was in the media press corps that day, and I went up to Davey. Now, analytics are just coming out. And I said mm-hmm. to Davey, I said, you know, I'm looking at Doc's first two years, and I'm looking at how you pitched them. You pitched them a lot. By today's standards, again, 2010, they had the whole pitcher's abuse points. You might have overused them. Davey stopped Mm. me right away, got very mad at me, actually, and said, hold on, hold on. (laughs) I I held up to 100. He he stopped me, got very mad. He says, hold on, 125 pitches. And not only did uh, I keep them to 125 pitches, uh, other managers of other teams who had star pitchers were mad at me because their pitchers were going deeper. He mentioned Fernando Valenzuela. So if anything, I remember using Doc. So. You got mad at me. So, but think about the perspective, Doc. I was looking at it from a modern day. Not that I agree with it. You were used yeah. a lot. Never would happen today. I think you'd agree. Yeah, that's true. It was a different game back then. And if I had to do it all over, I would do it the same way. Um, back then, our mindset was when you took the ball, you, you wanted to pitch the whole game. If you didn't pitch the whole game, you want to go at least seven, eight innings. Um, that was just my mindset. I know in, um, even the year before that, in A-ball, I had 300 strikeouts. I think I had like 190-something innings. But that was just my mindset. You know, I felt great. I had no problems. I didn't get tired. So I felt that was okay. If it was a situation where I was having a problem with my, with my arm or I felt like I was getting tired or overused, I probably felt different about it. But at that time, that's the way the game was. And even before my time, when guys were going on 40 rotation, I remember um, talking to Ferguson Jenkinson last year, the All-Star game in Cleveland. He told me I had 30-something complete games one year. I thought in 85 when I had my 16 complete games, that was something big. But he said, when you get – 30, I think 32 complete games out of 35 starts or something like that, he told me. And so that's just the way the game was. The game's changed so much now. Where now, I mean, I understand, but to me, I think um, some analytics are good, some some I don't agree with. Like um, when you throw 100 pitches, they take these guys out. But there's a big difference throwing 100 pitches in three innings or 100 pitches in seven innings, or they don't have this they have this thing where they don't want the starting pitchers facing the lineup three times around. But I see so many games where guys are breathing through the lineup they get to 100 pitches and they get the bullpen up. By the end of the season, the bullpen is wore out. And I think that's why a lot of times now in the postseason, you see these teams using the starters and so on because the bullpen is wore out. And I don't agree with the way these pitchers now, especially in the middle of summer. In April or September, I get it. Certain young guys, I get it if they can't help it. Outside of that, if guys pitch it great, I think you just got to let them pitch. That's just my opinion. 1984. Not everyone talks about that. Obviously, 85 is your Cy Young year. But I, and I, I'm, I was young, so it's hard for me going back. Obviously, you remember it vividly. It, everyone talks about the dominance, and, and especially late in the year, you had some really big strikeouts, back-to-back 16 uh, strikeout games. But you, as you go through the box scores, you had your rough starts early on. It wasn't until like the All-Star break, at least from the box scores, it looked like you really were starting to take off. What were low A you were in the year before. People forget that. Young guy, teenager, coming up. What were some of the things you were going through? Because it wasn't as easy as everyone, I think, looks back and makes it out to be. At least when you look at the box scores, there were some games you got hit, and obviously you were learning at the time. Yeah, that's true. I mean, you know, like you said, I was 19 years old, uh, first time around the league, and these hitters, you know, they're professional hitters, these are the best hitters in the world. They do their homework. I only had two pitches at the time, fastball, curveball. Um, I would change speeds my curveball. So, um, as you said, like, I remember my first start in Houston, I pitched well, got the win. My second start in Chicago, I got knocked out third inning. So, a lot of inconsistency there. And just about learning the hitters, learning my stuff, learning the uh, umpires. Each umpire had a different spectrum, not to justify anything, but just making a lot of adjustments as I went. Um, obviously, you know, starting by my pitching coach was a big help. And Keith Hernandez, he was like my assistant pitching coach on the field. He was great. He helped me a lot. A lot of hitters in certain situations. So it's just a matter of um, building up confidence, you know, with success, experience, confidence, um, learning how to breathe bat speed, and just basically learning on the job as I went. Because back then, you didn't have all the scouting reports like they have now. 
um, back then it was just, you know, like a pitching coach, the catcher, and the starting pitch, you get together before the game, go over the lineup, and you go out and you pitch. Now they have, I mean, they have the scouting reports. Like, it's like a phone book now. Yeah, so it was totally different. And you're right. I remember once I got around the All-Star game, and after the All-Star game, when I really took off, my confidence was a lot better. Um, I felt better. I was getting stronger as the season went. And just felt more control. And like I said, with success brings confidence. And I started having a lot of success. So I feel pretty good about myself and um, just took off from that point. Now, I could make the argument, and I know back then they looked at things differently. If they looked at pitching like they do today, you might have won the Cy Young that year. Now, I know Sutcliffe was 16-1. and one. Obviously, we're a little biased here in New York. But from a standpoint of win shares and the things they look at now, you were the most valuable pitcher in the National League, and you didn't get – I don't believe you got a first-place vote at all. Rookie, again, things look differently. It's – 85 was huge, but from a run prevention standpoint, 84 is actually better. I don't know if you ever looked at that, if you ever go to your baseball reference page or look at any of those kind of numbers. I never looked at that number. I'm glad you brought that up. It's good to hear. I thought I should have won. Nothing as Rick Sutcliffe with a phenomenal year when he came over, going 16-1. I get it. Um, but just from the numbers that I know, that's the only category he beat me in. It was a winning percentage. I beat him in every other category. And I thought I should have won so young, but I've heard somebody say, well, He's getting record of the year, so sucks that she gets second. Plus, the Cubs won it that year. But I thought she got it. And even nothing against these guys. Again, I'm not trying to knock these guys. Even in 85, I thought she got MVP. And I think I finished fourth in the MVP race that year. I mean, you look at my numbers, the numbers are there. I mean, I had, I think I had four four games that year. Also, I had pitched nine shot in this. I got no decisions. Um, I th- so I think I thought I got through with both men. They said, well, you, you did win record of the year. The second year, you did win so young. Yeah, but I thought she won rookie year, Cy Young the first year, and uh, Cy Young and MVP the second year. That's just my opinion. And if you look at September, almost the 85 role, I, I look at it as it started in September. I mentioned you had the back-to-back 16 strikeout games. I didn't realize the Mets lost one of those games. But your bet. Yes, I, I think I lost one of my book and put it up here. Yes, right. There you go. Um, <laughs> and I don't. again, I don't know if you looked at this, but – there's another thing that Bill James, and I'm not into all this, but I just found an interesting game score. They call, talk about a game score. And I went through your career. Really, you could go on baseball reference and you get all this stuff. That Pittsburgh game, that 2 nothing victory, based on their metric, is the best game you pitched in your career, believe it or not. Now, you may not agree with that. I'm sure you have others you're thinking about. That Pittsburgh game, that first, I think that's the first 16 striker game, that's your best game according to advanced analytics. I don't know if you realize that, if you remember that game. I remember – Best in pitch. I was. I didn't know that was the, my best game though. How many hits I gave up that game? Do you remember? How many walks? Uh, don't have that in front of me, but I could probably get that up for you at some point. That's but interesting. You had 16 strikeouts. I always thought the best game on pitch that I can remember. I think it was 85. I was in L.A. Um, I think the score was two nothing or three nothing, and Gary Carter was catching me. I didn't throw a breaking ball into the seventh inning, and I remember the ninth inning. I got a couple guys. Might have been a base load. They got on a couple guys got on base, and they had three lefties coming up. I think I struck two of them out, and then I think Terry Whitfield popped up in the game. I thought that was my best game. You know, looking back at it, just top of my head. Yep, nine innings, no walks, sixteen strikeouts. The next game, you lose that game, two one. Eight innings, sixteen strikeouts, no walks. Dominant performance. Well, and you've talked about this, and I thought about this in the context of Jacob Degrom, who went through this, and whenever the game comes back. Pete Alonzo will go through this from an offensive side. You set such yep. a high bar, and I think you've talked about this, that the media is never going to look at what you do after that the same. That's the media. But for you, mm-hmm. Dwight Gooden, how did you assess yourself? Was it hard on you because everyone kept saying 86, 87, 88, you're not the same. It, you know, it's not as exciting. Hard for you to live up to that benchmark. How did you look at it? Did you allow the public, the fans, the media to creep into your performance? And did that change you on the field anyway, how you went about your craft? Oh, big time. And, and that's a great question because I talked about that where, you know, normally you have those type of years, maybe like year five, year six, uh, once you get like 28, 29 years old. Mine happened in 1920, my first two years. And I remember a game in 86 where I pitched a shutout, but I only had three. Uh, strikeouts. The first question was, what happened? You only had three strikeouts. And, you know, you'll say the political correct words. You'll say, oh, I'm not worried about that. I just want to win. It's for the team. But inside, now, that hit a nerve where you feel like my next start, I got to pitch nine innings. I got to pitch a shutout. I got to get ten strikeouts. Um, 
And I, I lost some fun that I was having in the game because of that, because of expectations, where it became like the media expectation, the fan expectation, then it became my expectations, where I felt that anything I did, like I couldn't match 85 no matter what I did. But in my mind, if I didn't get the 10 strikeouts or whatever, it wasn't the same. It wasn't just a win. And I wasn't having as much fun as I should have had. And that's one of the things I regret looking back at my career now, where I allowed things, you know, whether it's the media, the fans, or myself after that point getting into my own head, allowing me to lose the fun. Because it should be a privilege playing Major League Baseball, and you're still winning games. You're still pitching great. Obviously, it's not 85, but unfortunately, I had my career year, my second year, or you say my first year, and you're never going to match that again. But you, you know, everybody said everything is, um, look at it, because you set the bar so high, and everything you do is compared to that. Everything is say, okay, yeah, you fished great, but it wasn't, you know, like last year. You fished great, yes, but it wasn't. And you start thinking that, and it took away from the fun because I allowed it to. I still had a great year in 86. But it was in 85, and I got into my own head. And I remember they used to have the K corner up in the left field corner. And when you strike a guy out, if nobody's on base, they pass the ball around the infield. The third baseman is always the last guy to touch the ball before he throws to the pitcher. So when I was getting the ball back from the third baseman, I always take a peek up to the corner to see how many strikeouts I had because I wanted to you know, make sure I try to get the 10 strikeouts. And that's the wrong way to pitch a game, thinking about strikeouts. It should be going inning by inning, hitter by hitter and doing whatever it takes to get the team in the game to win that game. But my starts became where I had to pitch, you know, give a one run or less, 10 strikeouts, and at least go eight or nine innings. And that was unfair pressure that I was putting on myself and that everybody else was putting on myself as well. But more than anything, it was unfair pressure and expectations I was putting on myself. You can check out Doc Gooden on the web, goodenbrand.com, uh, at docgooden16. We're talking pitching with Dwight Gooden. And, you know, I'm listening to you, and, and granted, you're right, 16 strikeouts, dominant games. But for me, and I always I enjoy, I, I mean, I could never pitch, but I enjoy watching. I look at it as like art. And the game for me and what would impress me with a pitcher is maybe when you don't have your best stuff. I look at Jacob deGrom in that uh, Dodgers series a few years back. Had a great game one, but what always impressed me, what always uh, set the bar with him is when he battled through that decisive game. For you... When I think of games, I think of game five against Houston. You pitched against Nolan Ryan. You only gave up one run. You went 10 innings. I mean, think about that, 10 innings. Ryan was Hall of Fame that day. Now, again, fuzzy memory, but I look at the numbers. You didn't strike out a lot of guys. You had to get out of trouble. You weren't dominant. Ryan was dominant. You weren't, but you battled, and you made it through. And there's forget about game six. You guys have to face Mike Scott. You guys have to win two games in the Dome, which is really difficult if you don't do game five and you don't keep your team in the game. So to me, that's really pitching, at least in my opinion. I'm sure you have a lot of memories about that game as well. Oh, yeah, you're right. And that's a good point. Um, and even like, like you mentioned, like game one against Scott, he beat me one nothing. I gave it the home run to Glenn, Glenn Davis in the second. Um, <laughs> and then game five against Nolan, I didn't have my best stuff. You had to battle because, you know, a lot of times when a pitcher is pitching, he will say, oh, I'm not about the opposing pitcher. I'm worried about that team. But you are – aware of the opposing pitcher because you know a guy like Nolan, you're not going to get much to work with. So you got to shut them down. And if in and I mean, every inning is the ninth inning because of the way Nolan was totally dominating. And he always pitched against it. So I knew there was no room for error. And game five was a, a pivotal, pivotal game because of what you said. We're going back to Houston for six and seven, and we won't know part of Mike Scott that year because, I mean, he's just un- unbelievable and unhittable. So it was a huge game, and each inning was a battle. I think they had a man on base almost every inning. I know, like, the first five or six innings, they had a guy on base, but there's a base hit or walk. Um, pitching in and out of jams, but, you know, make him keep pitching when I had to. Um, and just battling and end up going 10 innings, which normally don't happen, which you never said in today's game, like you said, because of the analytics. But at that time, I think that was one of my better games also. But it just wasn't, like you said, dominating, but I made key pitches when I had to. And games like that, you're right. You appreciate those games more than you could. You appreciate a game where you, you know, you fish to one hitter with 15 trails and you totally dominate. Pitch a game like that and that magnitude, and especially against, you know, my childhood idol and what was online, that was probably one of, me personally, was one of my better games I've pitched in my career. You talked about living up to expectations, but there was also some changes you made. If I remember correctly, you worked on the slide step with holding runners on. The 80s was a speed era, so you wouldn't have to deal with that today. 
Um, you mentioned you only had two pitches when you came up. I'm assuming you changed your repertoire or you changed as you got a little bit more seasoned, went through the league one, two, three, four times. How did you change those early years before you hurt your shoulder? How did you change? Because I'm sure you changed a lot after you hurt your shoulder later in your Mets career into your Yankees years. How did you change early on before you, you had to adapt because of, of physical injuries? Well, what I had to do was, um, like, like I was saying, by only having two pitches, I just turned them into four pitches. And what I mean by that, I would change speeds from my curveball and then my fastball, I'd change grips to, you know, try to get it to do different things, whether it's turn into like a little sink, not much, but just a little sink, just get it into something different to look at. But I would do that in different situations where I knew I won't get hurt. But I learned how to, you know, change speeds from my curveball, learn how to locate my curveball, where most of the time, with young pitchers, you throw a curveball just because the catcher calls a curveball with nothing, you know, with no thought behind it. Um, I learned to change speed to the curveball. Well, I throw the get me over curveball. I throw the, the hard curveball, and I learned how to throw the curveball down and away to a lefty, or down and away to a righty. I know how to do the hard curveball. I know how to bite throw the curveball. So even though it was two pitches, but it became four pitches for me. Learning that, and, and as you mentioned, as I got older, the Yankee years, especially once I hurt my shoulder, I had the surgery. I kind of lost my curveball a bit, and I had to learn a slider. And the slider became my number two pitch, and the curveball just became more of a show pitch. Um, if I was behind in the count, maybe like the first pitch gave me over. If I was behind in the count, you know, I throw the curveball. But the slider became my real number two pitch because I lost the curveball after the injury. And once I went to the Mercury with the Yankees, I learned to change up. Um, that I didn't have when I was with the Mets. I just couldn't. I would throw a couple here and there and intentionally try to bounce it just to show it. Once I got to the Yankees, I learned it a little bit. I mean, it wasn't that effective. It was like my number three or four pitch. But I did learn to change up at that time to make the adjustment. And as you get older and you start losing, you know, your velocity, you have to make adjustments. And when you play a long time, you have to make adjustments because, you know, hitters, you know, they do their homework. And wherever you, and plus when you go to America, you're facing an extra hitter, meaning the DH. And always felt like the ballparks over here are a lot smaller. And at the time when I played, American League was more – there was more um, focus on offense, less defense. I think National is more defense. American League, like the shortstop, he might be a 20-home run hitter in the American League, where in the National League, shortstop's batting eighth. So it was just a totally different game. And you had to make a totally different adjustment at the time as you get older and switching leagues. And I don't think people realize that I found an old article – that was a serious shoulder injury. I believe you strained your capsule, and I, I think those are injuries. Chris Young had that, former Met. Those usually end careers, and I don't think people realize, even when you look at the articles when you first got hurt, there was a lot of downplaying in the media. I'm sure the Mets and you also wanted to do that. Uh, I think that's underreported because that's a big adjustment for you when you lose. I mean, you lose a curveball. I mean, that's your pitch. That's what Lord Charles, you got the shirt on. I mean, that's, yep, I don't that's think sure. people realize how big of a deal – that was how serious that shoulder injury was. I said that was a huge deal because being a power pitcher, you have a shoulder injury like that. Like I, I tore my cuff and I tore my labrum. And prior to that, in 89, was when I started having problems with it and I missed some time. But I continued to pitch a little bit. And then I think, 90, I think it was 91. I'd say 91 or 92, but I think it was 91. Because when I tore it, first they said it was a labrum tear, but you should be fine. So they gave you a cordial shot you pitch. And then I tore my labrum. So now I have a torn labrum and a torn rotator cuff, and you're out. And then you lose the curveball because I'm afraid to throw it because I remember hearing it pop when I threw the curveball and when I tore the muscle. So now I lose that, and then you got to make adjustment, go to the slider. But like you mentioned, the curveball is my bread and butter. That was a pitch where I felt I could throw it at any time. You know, I want it. I could throw it for any location I want it. It's like throwing a fastball for most people. But I could throw my curveball and my fastball. <laughs> And now being a two-pitch pitcher, now you take that curveball away, basically a one-pitch pitcher, and then you learn in the slot as you go. I mean, you can't go to special league or you can't go play one ball to learn this. You learn as you go, and then I just learned to slider, basically taught myself to slider with the help of Mel Stoudemire, and, and then learned to change up, which really wasn't, I mean, that change up really wasn't a big league pitch, but it's something that I had to learn and had to throw it at different times just to show it. So, and like you said, it was a huge adjustment. People not realize that, that, I lost my base. I lost my number one pitch with the curveball because I could throw it at any count at any time. I could change speeds with it. You're, and then we go back to what we talked about, the art of pitching. Yeah, you obviously love your Mets years, and you pitch your no-hitter with the Yankees, which, funny, goes back to analytics. Not even your best top ten performance if you go by these analytics, these, these game scores. It's out of the top ten, and you pitch a no-hitter. But oh, that was amazing how that happened. Years, 
that's right. You could go get everything here on Baseball Reference. If you look at those Yan- Yankees years, Cleveland, um, and, and then you got back to the Yankees. You really had to learn to pitch. I mean, do you take a certain level of pride with those years? I know you're a Met, and you and everyone loves you with the Mets, and, and we're a Mets-centric show here, but there's got to be pride to you that you're able to navigate the American League with the DH. Obviously, there's steroids going on. Offense yep. in those years, 96, 97, 98. I know it's crazy now. It was maybe even crazier back then. Um, and it was, you know, you're right. Offense, that's yeah. just home run. So you got to take certain totally pride different. in that. that those, those, were, those were tough. American League East, Cleveland's division, you know, tough, tough uh, lineups out there. No, you're right, and I, and I agree with that. And especially, like, my first year, you know, I missed the entire 95 season. Well, I missed half of 94 and all of 95. And then when I started in 96, I started off 0-3. And you know what's amazing about that? I remember I was in Kansas City, and at the time they had – basically benched me, Jotori benched me. And what I mean by that is when a pitcher gets benched, that means you're not getting in the game if you're up 10 runs or you're down 10. You're not getting in the game. So I remember in the Kansas City, I'm walking to the bullpen, and at that time I'm, I'm just thinking to myself, I'm just going to start working on stuff. And I say, if I get the opportunity to pitch again, I'm just going to go out and do it if I can. I know I could still pitch. But I just need to work. I need the opportunity to do it. Unfortunately, my good friend David Cohn got the aneurysm, and that's why I got back into the rotation. And like you said, getting back into the rotation, you know, at that time I hadn't lost the curveball. I learned to change up in the slider, so I'm making an adjustment and then doing it in the American League. I ended up winning, I think, I think seven or eight in a row from that point. I had some great games. And then I just, at the end of the season, my show just got tired from lack of pitching. And, you know, I missed a year and a half, so I just ran out of gas. But even the day I pitched that no-hitter, I mean, I've had way better stuff quality-wise Early on in my career with the with the Mets, but for his pitching, as you mentioned, for his just spread out pitching, studying hitters, um, changing speeds, and all that, I probably was a better pitcher. I had better stuff with the Mets, but I probably was a better overall pitcher my time with the Yankees after those first three starts. Um, I had like 11 game span where I probably pitched better than I pitched my whole time for as consistently with the Yankees than I did with the Mets. And people look back at that and say, "No way, you had way better stuff. That's more like you find." That's true. I had better stuff, but I was a better pitcher with the Yankees. And you're right. I totally agree with that. And, you know, you look back at your Mets career, the one thing, and this is my opinion, not Doc's, uh, I know you didn't pitch game seven in 88. And I know Darling started, no knock on Ron Darling, but he had some tough game sevens for you guys. Uh, You came in after him. I always wonder, you versus Hershiser, I mean, similar to Nolan Ryan a couple of years earlier, Earl Hershiser was going to shut people down, but it was very hard to score. But you battled him the game one. Did you ask Davey for the ball? Could you look back now? Did you try to get that ball? Not out of the bullpen. Obviously, you came out of the bullpen. Did you want to start that game? You know, could you, did you petition for it? What do you remember about that? Um, I wanted to start. I didn't, I didn't fight, fight it. Um, I had confidence in Ron Darling. Um, it was a situation where I thought, like Davey said, you're, you're pitching the first game against Oakland. Get ready for the World Series. He told me that. And I believe that because I, not that I took the Dodgers for granted, and I know Hersh has was having an unbelievable year, but I just had I had confidence in Darling, and we had beat the Dodgers up pretty good that year. I think they only beat us once or twice on the regular season, even though whatever you did the regular season, the postseason, a whole another, yeah, that's a whole another, that's a totally different ball game altogether there. Um, but I had confidence that we was going to beat the Dodgers. I don't know why I just felt that it was a better team, and even though. The year Hirsch has had, I just had confidence in Darling. Thought was compete him, so I didn't really ask the ball to go my way. I trusted Darling. I trusted David's decision. And like you said, I ended up coming in that game in the second inning anyway. At that point, the damage was already done. When you came back to Shea Stadium in 2000, a game that actually I was out as a fan, as a young young adult, uh, first game of the doubleheader. That was the day that the whole Clemens Piazza thing is. That ha- was that that had to be surreal for you. Here you are, you're back on the Shea mound, first time in six years. You're with the Yankees, which is always weird for Mets fans to get over that. You and Daryl with the Yankees. Look, you guys accomplished a lot with the Yankees. You're not taken away. It's always weird. I mean, think about an 88-89 Mets fans being told you guys are going to win World Series with the Yankees. And that's like, that's horror for them. Now you're back yep. on the mound as a Yankee. The Mets really needed to win. There was a lot of animosity between the fan base, the teams. You're in the middle of this. You're, you're pitching for your career, it sounded like, in what I've read. Yep. What do you remember about that? Because that had to be a weird, surreal situation for you. Oh, really man, pitching that, your career against your former team. That subway series, you could not ask for a crazier uh, situation coming together. 
Oh, that was unbelievable. And if I may, I take you back to how that all came about leading to that. In 94, when, the, when I, you know, I got suspended and the Mets wanted to cut ties, and I, I wanted to come back to the Mets because I wanted to make it right with the fans. I did not want to lead the Mets that way. Uh, they said they want to cut ties, and then I was suspended the entire 95 season. So when the suspension was lifted, I called the Mets, Steve Phillips, the general manager. I said, I'd like to come back. He said, unfortunately, you know, wish you all the best. We're going to go in a different direction. I was very lucky, and I was happy that Mr. Sandberg gave me an opportunity to join the Yankees because I wanted to stay in New York um, because of fans, number one, and number two, I just love New York. And he gave me an opportunity. So 96, 97, I pitched for the Yankees. And then after 97, I became a free agent. I called the Mets again, or I had my agent call them. So I'd like to come back on a contract, whatever, it doesn't matter. Once again, Steve Phillips said, unfortunately, we have no room. We wish you all the best. Then I went to Cleveland for two years, 98-99. After the 99 season, I called the Mets again. I'd like to come back any room. They said, unfortunately, Doc, we wish you all the best. I said, no. I ended up signing with Houston. I pitched one game. I got traded to Tampa. I had eight starts. I got released. I called the Mets again. Steve Foster, unfortunately, no. I said, I'll go to AAA. I'll do whatever you, you want. And so basically he insulted wow. me by saying, you know, I'll be down in Port St. Lucie shortly. I'll give you a call. And when I'm down there, if you want, you can drive over and I'll watch you throw. To me, that was an insult. So at that point, I said, okay, my career's probably over because the phone wasn't ringing. Um, about two weeks after that, Mr. Steinbrenner called me himself. said, Doc, what are you doing? I said, nothing. I'm just at home. He said, do you still want to play? I said, sure. So are you in Tampa? Yes. I said, okay. Show up at the complex, work out with Billy Connors, and if it doesn't work out, you come work for me. So okay, cool. The next day, I show up at the complex in Tampa. I start working out, getting back in shape. Then Billy worked on some things on my mechanics. Pitched uh, a couple of rookie ball games, nothing special. The next morning, I remember Billy calling me into the office. I said, Doc, I see an office. I thought they was going to release me. I said, okay, this is probably it. I go in the office. He said, um, we need a pitcher in New York. So you need a pitcher in New York? I said, okay. He said, yes, we have a double hitter, the late night double hitter that you mentioned. The day game at Shea, the night game at Yankee Stadium. The boss wants you to pitch against the Mets. So I was like, wow. I knew I wasn't ready, but I couldn't say no. But this was my one opportunity that I had wanted going all the way back to 94 just to pitch at Shea Stadium that one last time just to make it right for the fans. So in my mind, I figured I'm probably going to get destroyed. At least I got to go to Shea this one last time. So I remember flying up to New York, me and Billy Connors. Um, we fly up to New York the next day. You know, I'm in the bullpen, and it was very strange, very strange. I went into Shea Stadium from the visitor side and warming up in the visitor's bullpen. And I remember warming up, and I started my pitching coach, and he told me to try this. I had absolutely nothing. I couldn't locate anything. I had no velocity. And finally, Mel started my said, Doc, try this. Doc, try that. Doc, try this. And then finally, he didn't say anything. And so when my warm-up pitch was done, and I'm walking down to the dugout to get ready for the start of the game, Normally, at the start of the game, there might be one or two guys in the bullpen go down. But it seemed like the whole entire bullpen was going down, all but Marion Rivera, he's the only guy. I'm sure Stoudemire probably told his guys, get down here quick. He's <laughs> not going to last long. And to make matters worse, when I finally got ready to take the mound after we got out, Joe Torrey said, come on, Doc, give me whatever you got. One inning, two innings, whatever. That's something you never tell a starting pitcher. Normally you say, come on, give me whatever you got. You don't say to a starting pitcher, give me whatever you got, one or two innings. But they knew I had nothing on that. I got the Shea, when I got on the mound at Shea Stadium, it started taking my warm-up pitches. It felt like everything just came into place. The fastball was right there. The location was there. The curveball was there. slider, everything was right there. And I ended up pitching five innings and getting the win. And then, you know, stand with the Yankees the rest of the year in the bullpen. And then we beat the Mets in the World Series. And then I thought, what a way to retire. Was, I, I suggest well, amazing way that all worked out. That must have been weird, too. That had to be weird. You made the Mets in the World Series. You beat them. Obviously, it's great for you. Um, you won more World Series with the Yankees than the Mets. That's the crazy part. That's, yeah, that's another weird, weird yeah. thing that, you know, in a way, you know, your Yankee career from a, a winning standpoint, uh, and I don't know if you believe those teams are better. Obviously, they're better. They won more titles in a vacuum, maybe 86. Uh, you were more successful as a, as a team, I guess. And you never would have thought that, I guess. So that the Yankees clearly have that special place in your heart because while the Mets rejected you for whatever reason, 
The Yankees always seem to be there for you. So they, they obviously. Oh, definitely. I couldn't thank Mr. Steinberg and his family enough for giving me the opportunity to, you know, continue my career in New York. And not only that, to stick with me and the win and be on the roster, especially the way the Mets, you know. I mean, I get it. I'm always going to be a Met at heart. But just the way that all turned out, and that was just my way of, I wouldn't say getting back at the Mets, but it's just sometimes the way things end. I mean, you don't understand it at the time, but it was meant to be at that time. It was great. I will always be thankful for the Yankees organization for giving me the opportunity. Before, before I let you go, I'd be remiss. Uh, you guys always pitchers love to talk hitting. So you got you, you got Cone, Aguilera, Darling. Even El Cid had a home run in his career. So you can be honest. Who's the best hitter out of you guys? Who's the best hitter when the, <laughs> at 5 o'clock? Who's the best hitter at 5 o'clock? And who is the you, you you don't be humble. Give us the truth here. Who is the best hitter? Because all you guys had some success. The only one who didn't hit is Ojeda. He couldn't get it in. So uh, yeah, who, who's hit. the best yeah. hitter out of you? Actually, and like Rick Aguilera was a good hitter. He was actually drafted as a third baseman. Sid was a great hitter, but I was the best power hitter. I had the most home runs at BP out of anybody. Um, I would probably say Sid was the best hitter, but I was the best power hitter. Wow. I never would have thought you said Sid, and he had a couple of home runs in his career. That's interesting. So, Goodinbrand.com. Goodinbrand.com is the website. Doc, um, one last thing, Walter, just to get figure. So you said baseball's yeah. on hiatus. We don't know what's going to happen. Your opinion, there's some different scenarios out there. You know, maybe they play like a spring training league in Arizona or Texas. Um, my, my take, just whatever the season could be, as long as it's 81 games and everybody's self healthy and safe, Try to make it as normal as possible. Don't try to rig the leagues. I don't think that's real baseball. Do you agree? I mean, I don't want to see baseball for the sake of baseball, even though I know it would be a really good thing. What What's your take? What would you like to see if we could get back in 2020? Yeah, I, I totally agree with you. I think health health is the number one thing for his fans, players, and everybody. That's number one. Even we don't have – I'm a huge baseball fan, huge baseball fan. Um, I love to see baseball. I want to see baseball. But if it's going to risk someone's life or health, things like that, put anybody in danger, I said we wait to make sure. Let's get this thing right. But if we can't get anything going, I would say, you know, take it slow and at least, like you say, at least got to be half the season. You know, don't rig it and just say like one time he said, the team's training in Florida, the team's training in Arizona, and they play here and play here. I think that's too much. Let's do it as close as possible to the right way if we can. Um, and if we have to wait till next year, then you know what? We have to wait to make sure. I'd rather be safe than sorry anytime. I, I agree with you. Doc, you've been great. You've been generous with your time. Hopefully we could no, do this again. Pleasure. Be well. Be safe. Um, great talking pitching with you, and thank you so much for what you uh, gave us on the podcast tonight. Oh, oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me, Mike, and good luck with everything, and keep up the good work, right. buddy. Take care. Dwight Gooden. All right, buddy. Doc, Doc Gooden, at DocGooden16, GoodenBrand.com. If you want to check out his website, uh, good stuff. Talk a lot of pitching. You know, there's a lot that you can get out of these guys. You know, I always agree. You go into the nostalgia and the memories. You've heard all the stories. I wanted to get into him as a pitcher, and I think he gave us some good nuggets. And he even talked to us about who the best hitter on the, on the staff was. So interesting stuff from Dwight Gooden. All right, let's take a quick break. We'll be back with more right after this. The Talking Mets podcast is available on many outlets, but the most popular is Apple Podcast. Hi, I'm Mike Silva, the host of the Talking Mets podcast, and I encourage you to leave a review about the program on Apple. Just rate it one to five stars, hopefully a five because why wouldn't you? And then if you have time, leave a review. It helps the podcast continue to grow and encourages others to take a listen. You can also email me at MikeSilva at TalkingMetsPodcast.com No G. TalkingMetsPodcast.com Hope to hear from you soon and enjoy the rest of the show. All right, we're back. I hope everybody enjoyed that segment with uh, Dwight Gooden. Doc Gooden uh, joined us, and I think we learned a little bit. I think he was pretty honest. We talked about pitching. Hope you learned something a little bit here, and I certainly did. And I and I go back to really the underreported part of Doc. Forget the off-the-field stuff with the nightlife and the drugs and all the things that is well-documented that Doc isn't hiding from. Even putting that aside, if you look at Doc as he gets later in his career, he goes from a dominant pitcher, middle of the Mets career, league average, towards the end, below league average, and you heard him. He lost his curveball. 
And if you go back and you Google just some articles when he first had the shoulder issues, right after he signed his extension in 1991, it's talked about being severe, but it's downplayed the severity. Because they, they actually mentioned in some of the articles how Oral Hershiser had the surgery, came back, not the same picture. But it was never thought because of who Doc was and how special he was and how you never thought that there would be any kind of kryptonite to Doc, that any of that stuff would have an impact. And then, and then look, we know the off-the-field stuff, that throws him into another level of issues and what have you. And it's certainly played into problems and in performance on the field. But look at the list. You just Google it. It's very simple. Johan Santana, Chris Young, Chiming Wong. Pedro Feliciano had the the shoulder issues with the capsule. Tim Burdak, uh, who we know well, I know well, has been on this program. Mark Pryor, career basically got uh, undone with that. John Main. I mean, the list goes on and on. Once any kind of shoulder issue is a problem, it's not like elbows. It's not like Tommy John. Any arm issue is a problem. But elbows, you could come back with. And for the most part, with few exceptions, you can be the same or relatively the same, it's the shoulder that will undo you. And, and and Doc lost his signature pitch. And to his credit, and and you look at his numbers, they weren't fabulous, but he goes in the back half of his, of his career, he pitches in the American League, DH, tough divisions in the AL East and the AL Central. Steroids at its height, not an easy situation without his, his number one weapon. And he be, is able to navigate it provide some value, have a historic moment with the no-hitter, have another historic moment, a game that I was at that Saturday afternoon, the beginning of the day-night doubleheader against the Yankees, uh, against the Mets, where he pitched that first game against Shea. I remember that like yesterday. It's amazing that it's been 20 years. 20 years later, I feel like that game was yesterday, that season was like yesterday, and that I always called the, the 1997 to 2000, 2001 years as the golden age of the Subway Series. You know, somewhat of a... For me personally, a golden age of New York baseball. It'll it'll be it'll be the same again. It's it's still fun. I'm not saying it's it's not fun anymore, but there's something about that that period that always holds a different feel for me. Maybe because the Subway Series was new. Maybe because the Yankees of what they accomplished. You know, maybe because I was you know a young adult. There's a lot of things personally, professionally, from a baseball standpoint that maybe make that pretty special. So. Anyway, I hope you enjoyed the interview with Dwight Gooden. Uh, I want to thank our friend. You, you've had him on the show. He helped set this up. Rich Mancuso, uh, ring, at Ring786 on Twitter. You guys could check out Rich at Elite Sports New York and Latinosports.com. Rich, uh, hanging in there. I hope you're hanging in there, Rich, if you're listening. And, uh, you know, he's quarantining himself like everybody else here, hoping for sports to come at back, hoping for baseball to come back. And uh, hopefully there's a light at the end of the tunnel. And like Doc said, and I agree with this, and I think you'd get this, from most of the current players or former players. If you can't get it back to some normalcy of how the structure of the league is, forget about where you play and the home ballparks, but what the divisions, the playoffs, the leagues are, I just think you you scrap it, you start next year, don't try to shove a round peg in a square hole. That's my two cents. I just feel like it would be, uh, it would be doing more of a disservice to the game and uh, the history of the game than anything, despite the fact I think people really could use baseball and could start to move away from all the negativity that we've had over the last nearly two months since this whole situation started. All right. I want to thank everybody for listening to another edition of the Talking Mets podcast. I want to thank Doc Gooden at DocGooden16 on Twitter, GoodenBrand.com. You could check me out at the TalkingMetsPodcast.com. Send me a tweet at Mike Silva Media. And you get the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, pretty much whatever podcasting service you desire. If you want to leave me a personal note, Mike Silva at thetalkingmetspodcast.com. No G, Mike Silva at thetalkingmetspodcast.com. I'm your host, Mike Silva. Enjoy the rest of your weekend. Enjoy your week ahead. Stay healthy. Stay safe. Be well, everybody. And we'll see you again with another edition of the podcast next week. Take care, everyone.
Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Cashback is not available on gas in New Jersey and Wisconsin. Hey, good morning. You're heading to the airport, right? Yeah, thanks for checking. I like the car. How long have you been a rideshare driver? About three years now. I really enjoy it. Isn't it hard to make money these days with the price of gas being so high? Not for me. I use Upside, the free app that gives you cash back for every gallon of gas you buy. Wait a minute. Are you saying you actually get real money back when you get gas with the Upside app? Yep, I get real cash back every time I get gas. Does that actually add up to anything? I'll make around $200 to $300. Wow, that's serious extra cash. I'm downloading the Upside app now. Download the free Upside app now to earn real cash back every time you buy gas. Use promo code CAR for an extra 25 cents a gallon bonus on your first tank. You can cash out anytime right to your bank account, PayPal, or a gift card for Amazon and other brands. Just download the free Upside app and use promo code CAR for a 25 cents a gallon bonus on your first tank. That's code CAR.